0: So we are starting today a two-week Christmas series um, that I've titled Prophecy That Leads to Peace. Um, And what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at some of the prophecies that, it's kind of the prophecy side of Jesus' birth. And I'm going to tell you some reasons why I want to do that. But then next week we're going to get into the the peace side, the, the peace that Jesus brings. And one of the reasons I want to spend this week looking at the prophecies is that you probably know this. You're probably aware of this. Some of you parents, I won't go deep into this. Don't worry. I'm not going to hopefully get myself in trouble. I've gotten myself in trouble around Christmas before by saying certain things, but I'm not going to say certain things. Anyway, one of the reasons I want to speak about this and look at the prophecy side of this is that at Christmas time, it tends to be surrounded by a lot of what we would call make-believe Okay, And so this time just seems like to produce more and more of that. And you poor parents, I'm so thankful my kids are not growing up this time uh, with you guys. Some of y'all have got a big jobs ahead of you trying to play a lot of make-believe. Anyway, I want to make sure that we proclaim the story of Jesus being born, Jesus coming to save us as truth, not some fairy tale. Okay, What we're going to talk about today, when we read from here, when we tell the stories from here, this is truth. This isn't make-believe, this isn't somebody made this up, this isn't some feel-good story so we can just kind of go, oh, it's Christmas time and I love all of the... No, this is truth, absolute truth. So to do that, I want to spend some time uh, looking at that proof that Jesus was and is the Messiah, born as a Savior for all of us, which, by the way, as you're going to see this morning, there is substantial proof. I love this quote um, from Dr. Stoner. who he, He wrote a book called Science Speaks. <clears throat> he's quoted in that book as saying, any man who rejects Christ as the son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That's just truth. Why would he say that though? What, how can he say that? First of all, he was a mathematician. He's, he, there's so many incredible, you can look him up later, but uh, as to how he has so much uh, information here, but you need to know that there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies concerning the birth, life, and ministry and death and resurrection of the Messiah. 300 prophecies spoken of hundreds of years before Christ and all of them would be fulfilled through Jesus. That is phenomenal. Which, by the way, it's mathematically impossible for 300 prophecies to be accidentally fulfilled in one person. You need to understand that. Get this, for Jesus... Make sure you hear these numbers. For Jesus to have just fulfilled eight, sing, single number there, eight. If he would have just fulfilled eight of the 300, again, he fulfilled them all. But for someone to fulfill just eight of the 300, the odds would be one in 100 quadrillion. And that's just eight. Eight. He fulfilled 300 plus. Again, this is why Stoner says, Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. I mean, if you investigate Jesus enough, you have to just downright say, I don't believe because you just don't want to believe. Not because you can find facts against it. There's way too many things for it. Matter of fact, I believe it takes more faith to say Jesus didn't exist and Jesus doesn't fulfill these things and God doesn't exist. and all. It takes a whole lot more faith to believe that than it does to believe the Word of God and what it says. So as we approach Christmas time, this time of year, we celebrate Jesus' birth, His coming to save us. And so my hope is that this series will ground you even more in your faith, or maybe, just maybe, this may be the Christmas that you become a believer, that you're like, you know what? God did something in my heart today, and I do believe that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, before we look at these prophecies, I want to answer another question, because I've learned through the years with you guys, you tend to have questions, and, you don't, and so I kind of want to get those out of the way, first of all. Let me give you an answer to a question that many of you probably have, is why should we really know the Old Testament prophecies? I mean, come on, Darren, that's a whole lot of old stuff. Do we really need to know that? What good does it do me to spend time to, looking at these old prophecies, reading these things? What, what is that going to, how is that going to help me? So there's two reasons I want to give you, and then we're going to dive into the scripture for this morning that we're going to spend time in, but... The first reason why it's important for us to know prophecies about Jesus is this. It reminds us that God is faithful to his promises. If you don't know that these prophecies exist and then that they were fulfilled, it's not going to do anything for you. When you know they exist and then you see that they were fulfilled, it's like, man, our God is so faithful. And if you haven't yet, like I told you this last week, you will have a time in your life, probably multiple times in your life, when you're going to need to cling to the faithful promises of God. Psalm 145, 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. Church, if, if, if God made promises that never came true, we would have reason to doubt him. If he gave all these things, and we read these things, and we're like, oh, but none of this stuff has ever come true. None of, we don't see any of it. Matter of fact, opposite stuff's happened. Then we would be able to obviously we should be doubting God. But that's not what happened at all. It's no different than what we see in our own lives. There's certain people in your lives you don't trust. They're not trustworthy. Why? Because they've promised things. Maybe multiple times they've promised you something and then yet they've never followed through. And so they lose credibility with you. You realize they aren't trustworthy. So when, we, when God speaks through these prophets in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, and not just speaks, he doesn't even just speak in generalities, but very specific detail as we're going to see some of us today. And then they come true. Man, it just gives us that assurance, that trust that he is faithful and always will be faithful to do everything he has ever promised. Not only does it just go, man, it's true that this happened, that Jesus did was born, and this all these things that we're going to talk about today happen, it, it goes beyond that, right? Because then it makes us realize and brings us comfort in the fact that for his other promises, his promise to love us, his promise to never leave us or forsake us, his promise to always forgive us of our sins, his promise of heaven for all those who believe. And so one promise being answered or one prophecy being fulfilled it's one thing, 300 of them, and just in this part of scripture, it's like, oh my goodness, God is so faithful. He's so good. He never lets us down. He, he. So that also means to me, it's what your brain should do, that from this promise and this promise and this promise, he's, he's faithful. So it's important to know and remember because it reminds us God is faithful to his promises. The second reason it's so important for us to know these prophecies about Jesus is they prove that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. I mean, we need to know that. Our faith rests on Jesus is who he says he is. Our, our faith rests on the resurrection. Our faith rests on the fact that this wasn't made up. That This isn't just somebody that could fulfill these things or may, or kind of try to work something out and, and finagle a way to make it happen. we we got to know that for sure that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. That it's no coincidence. And we know that and we can be confident in this because Jesus fulfilled over 300 plus prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah, again, it's mathematically impossible to accidentally happen to one person. Just can't. So the prophecies we're going to look at today, and by the way, don't get scared. We're not going to look at all 300. We're not, we're not, I got, ain't nobody got time for that. I get it. But at the same time, we're going to look at five. We're going to look at five related to the birth of Jesus, obviously, because we're here around Christmas time. That will help us understand and see just how much proof we have that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So if you want to turn with me, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, um, is where we're going to spend our time, uh, more specifically, chapter one and chapter two. We'll be reading parts of those uh, as we go through this book of Matthew. Uh, if you need help finding, that's the very first book of the New Testament, let me help you a little bit. And as you're turning there, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background. Matthew, um, who's writing this gospel that bears his name. You need to know he's a Jew. And so he is writing primarily to Jewish people. So he knew his audience. He knew who was going to be reading this. And he knew they would be familiar with the Jewish scriptures, which is what would be called our Old Testament. He knew that what I'm about to talk about, and the reason he says what he says is because he knew they would know these prophecies, right? And so he knew this would really speak to them. This is why the first two chapters of his book, he quotes five Old Testament prophets, Again, he knew that this would help the people see and recognize that Jesus was and is the Messiah. And not only did it help them, obviously it does the same for us even today. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. We're going to read 18 through 23 where we see the first of these five prophecies this morning. This is what it says. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the first of the five specific prophecies fulfilled by Jesus is that he will be born of a virgin. Matthew, by the way, is quoting the prophet Isaiah here, which is... Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 that says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So that's who Matthew is referring to as the prophet here. <clears throat> now Mary's virginity, by the way, was emphasized here so that everyone would know that this baby was born and conceived by the Holy Spirit. Big deal because it's fulfilling prophecy. This was not by any sexual union by, with any other man. They needed to make sure they made that clear. Now I want to also give you some background between Joseph and Mary a little bit because I think it's super important for us to try to maybe understand this story just a little bit better. We've got to understand what's behind an ancient Jewish wedding in order to be able to get the full understanding of what's going on right now. So verse 18, it says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, before they had consummated the marriage, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So an ancient Jewish wedding, you need to know, had two parts to it. Um, The first part was what's called here this pledging period. And some of your Bible translations may say betrothal. So there's this betrothal period or this pledging period that goes on. That's one part of it. Then the second part of it is then the marriage celebration. And normally those two things, this pledging period, betrothal period, and the marriage celebration, there was about a year's worth of time between these two things happening. So this time that we're reading about is during this pledging period time. This year's worth of time. This pledging period, betrothal period. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now their marriage would have been arranged then by the father uh, of, of the groom and the father of the bride. The father of the groom would offer what is called a bride's price to the father of the bride. Okay, This is known as a dowry that was, that was paid. Sometimes it was in a form of livestock or land or money. Um, they would come up with something they, they would offer and, you know, I'll give you 300 camels for your daughter to be married to um, my son, whatever it is. But it was this bride's price. And it was, it was given to the father of the bride to be what was meant to be kind of like alimony in case there was a divorce that was to happen. Because you've got to remember back in this time, especially for, for women here, in these days they were completely dependent on a man for, her, for their survival. So this was, in case something went bad with this marriage, I'll give you this so that she will have something to fall back on. So when this arranged marriage takes place, the, the bride price is exchanged, but you need to also know that vows are also exchanged. The bride and the groom are considered legally married, but they would not consummate the marriage yet. <clears throat> the only way to divorce after this pledging, again, or this betrothal period, was through a certificate of divorce. This is The reason I'm telling you this is this is how serious and binding the, this pledging or betrothal period was. It's much different than what we have in our culture. See, a lot of the times we would be maybe uh, want to say, oh, it's like an engagement. No, it's not like an, an engagement in our culture, really doesn't mean anything, right? It's kind of, I mean, I, I know it's like, oh, well, it means something. You know, it basically, it means, if you like what you see, put a ring on it, right? I mean, that's basically what it means, okay? Just, <laughs> uh, uh. anyway, that, that's what it means. That's really all it means. Just like, oh, I like what I see. I'm going to put a ring on it. It means I'm promising that I kind of like this girl a little bit more than, than any other girl. And, and so, but there's no, there's nothing binding in that. There's tons of engagements. I don't mean to be the the bearer of bad news. There's tons of engagements that never make it to the altar, that never make it to a marriage ceremony. And so an engagement in our culture is nothing close to a pledging or a betrothal period that we see uh, in these ancient Jewish time frame. There's no legal binding for us. There was for them in biblical times. This is binding. Money is exchanged. Vows are exchanged. Now, scholars would say then that that there would be this year of separation. And, and the way they describe it is that a, the groom would go often and, and go and prepare a place, prepare a place for the, the two of them to have their, their new life together. And usually it was they would go and they would uh, add on to or make an addition to their father's house. Many times in this day, you would have generations of, of family living together in the same place or in the same home. And then he would go back. And he would get his bride and he would take her to his father's house. There's all this beautiful, uh, you, can, you can see the symbolism here, even um, with Jesus coming for us who were called the bride and taking us to his father's home. I And mean, we don't have time to get in deep into all of that, but it's a beautiful thing that you could even connect the dots here. But there would then be, once he came and got her and took her, took her to this place, there would be a seven days... Um, of this marriage celebration then after seven days they would consummate the marriage and so there would be no sexual union between them for this entire year period but here that's why there's like this kind of uh, issue that's happening here this is why where all the drama is coming in because when mary gets pregnant by the power of the holy spirit it's during this year-long betrothal period this is a time when you're not supposed to have been with anybody This is why in verse 19 it says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Why? Because in that culture, it was grounds for divorce. She had obviously, I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot here to, you don't need the Jerry Springer show at this moment to understand she's been unfaithful, right? It's punishable, by the way, by death, by stoning. If Joseph had not been a righteous man, he could have taken her before the, the elders of that city and said, "This is she's pregnant, we've not been together, I know that she's cheated on me. They would have then said she's guilty and they would have taken her out and they would have stoned her to death. So Joseph, of course, he's hurt by this, he thinks he's been cheated on, but because he's such a good man, he's going to divorce her quietly. He's not going to go that route, but he is going to divorce her. And then we read... This is where the angel of the Lord shows up to him and tells him what has really happened, that Mary hasn't been unfaithful. She's still a virgin. This pregnancy is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph believes and takes her home as his wife, and then this allows Jesus to fulfill the prophecy of being born of a virgin. So that's our first prophecy from Matthew. The second one is this. He would be born in Bethlehem. This one's found in in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, that's the the wise man, uh, uh, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. And this is the prophet Micah that's being quoted here. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that isn't a full quote there, but what they're referring to is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Bethlehem comes becomes the birthplace of Jesus. But that last part of verse 2 of Micah 5 is just another sign that This is speaking of Jesus, right? Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yes. But what do we also know? We know from John chapter 1 that Jesus has always been with God since before the creation of the world, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So it just proves, once again, this is absolutely Jesus that it is speaking of. And again, we get the second prophecy fulfilled here. In chapter 2, he would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. Then our third prophecy in chapter 2, it starts in verse 13 through 15. It says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. Where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So the third prophecy Jesus fulfills is he would be called out of Egypt. And that prophecy is from Hosea chapter eleven, verse one that says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This one is a lot of times it's overlooked. A lot of people, they, they know the Christmas story. or They know the story of Jesus' birth, I should say. And so they just go, oh yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and then he went to Nazareth. And they kind of skipped this whole Egypt piece. But Mary and Joseph, they flee to Egypt to avoid what Herod will soon do to all these little boys in Bethlehem. They stay in Egypt. Some scholars say they probably stayed there for two years. And so Jesus will fulfill this prophecy when they are called out of Egypt. They're told to return to Israel Once Herod has died and all is safe for them. Now, the fact that it wasn't safe, right, and the reason that they have to leave in the first place is where we get our fourth prophecy. And the fourth one is this He would be targeted as a child to be killed. Matthew chapter 2, 16 through 18 says When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So the reason that Joseph and Mary take baby Jesus they escaped Egypt was because King Herod was a, an extremely insecure man. And he feared, he was, he was threatened by this, that someone was saying, wait a minute, there's some king that's coming. There's someone that's been born that's going to be the king of the Jews. And so he thought, no one else is going to be king but me. And so he does everything he can to eliminate this child. And so what he does is the absolute unthinkable, and he gives orders For every little boy in and around Bethlehem, two years old and under, to be killed. Because he thought that that would take care of this child, Jesus. Because he knew that this baby would have been around the age of one or two years old when the Magi came. It says that's what he did. He put it together from what they told him about the star when they showed up, which would have been a year or two after Jesus was born. And he's like, okay. So as long as we go two years old and younger we're definitely going to eliminate him. So Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt to avoid this horrible massacre that's going to take place due to Herod's jealousy of Jesus. And so the prophecy, of it's from Jeremiah, and it says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So knowing a little bit about this will help. Ramah was a town that It was about five miles north of Jerusalem. And if you remember in the days of Jeremiah, it was when the Babylonians took over, right? They came and they they besieged Jerusalem, Israel. They took them out. And when they did, they took them captive and they marched them back to Babylon. And when they did that, they would go through Ramah. But when they got to Ramah, what they did was they began to separate the families. They literally separated the children from the parents. They wanted to separate everyone in different lots and take them back as captives to Babylon. And so you it doesn't take much if you're a if you're a parent to try to understand just the weeping that would take place as you know that as your children are literally ripped out of your arms and away from you and you're never going to see them again. And so all this is taking place. And this is what it's referring to here because they didn't want their families To be together, and so when it refers to Rachel, it's just it's this feminine word to generalize all of Israel, and all of Israel is in great weeping in Ramah, and so Matthew says this is a fulfillment here what happened in Bethlehem because of the great weeping of the mothers for their children who were being killed by King Herod, and then we come to our last prophecy, and this one is that he would be called a Nazarene. We're going to find this one in Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. It says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that they would be called, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now. We don't know why. It, it does seem here when you start to read this that it seems like Joseph and Mary weren't going to head back to Nazareth where they were from originally, right? It's kind of like when you assume that they, okay, you're free to go back now. Okay, we're going to go back to where we're from, from Nazareth. It doesn't seem like that's where they were probably headed. We don't know exactly why that is. More than likely, if you can imagine, the rumors, the the, the, the things people probably would have said about Mary when she was pregnant. You, you know, it's not hard for us to to imagine the oh yeah right Mm -hmm. you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit yeah okay Right. If we heard something like that today, just imagine how we would feel about that. And you're dating someone. You're in a betrothal period already. You're in a pledging period of time. Yeah, whatever. You guys obviously couldn't wait. You did this, and now you're trying to make it up and say that the Holy Spirit got you pregnant. That's pretty lame, Mary. I mean, you could imagine. I'm not saying that is exactly what happened. I'm saying it wouldn't be hard to imagine there was probably some pushback and some people that, that tormented her and them um, for saying the things that they had said had actually happened. And so, more than likely, they maybe didn't want to go back there. Remember, this is prior to social media. You could actually get away. You, you could actually go somewhere else, live somewhere else, start brand new, and nobody knew who you were, and <clears throat> you could just kind of go on with your life. And so, it would have been easy for them not to go back there or not want to go back there, but they do. And so, they end up there. Jesus is, so, Jesus, recap here, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Spends a couple years in Egypt, and now he's going to grow up in Nazareth and be called a Nazarene. And he will live in Nazareth until he's about 30 years old when he starts his ministry, and then he will move over to Capernaum. And this is why, though, he is called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when you look into this and you begin to read through this, Matthew said that this is spoken of, notice he says, by the prophets, he puts an S on it, not by the prophet. The other ones is like, by the prophet so-and-so, by the prophet Jeremiah, by the prophet you know, Micah. We know that. But this is by the prophets with an S, plural. But here's the thing. You, you could spend five or ten minutes diving into this, and you're going to find out that there's not a single prophet in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus being a Nazarene. So you'd be like, Matthew, are you sure about this one? You know that the prophets even, you didn't even just say one, the prophets What's going on here? So how can this be? Well, you have to understand that in Jesus' day, to be from Nazareth, it was not a good thing. It was not a... It didn't boost anything for your reputation to be known that you were from Nazareth. Nazareth did not have a good reputation. It would be equivalent to right now of saying, you're a Steelers fan, right? This would not be a good time for that to, to be something. I love you, Mike. <laughs> Sorry, things that pop in my head that should stay there. Anyway, the people of Nazareth didn't have a good reputation. So when you were known for that, if that's what you were automatically just kind of discounted. It was a town that literally was despised. So to be called a Nazarene was literally a negative term. If you remember, we, we get a little glimpse of this. You remember when Jesus was choosing the 12 disciples and, and there was that moment where Philip goes to Nathaniel and, and he tells him, he's like, listen, man, we, we found the Christ and it's, it's, he's Jesus of Nazareth. And the moment he says that, we know John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel immediately says, Nazareth? Like, are you kidding me? You're saying you found the Messiah, and of all the places that you're going to say the Messiah is from, Nazareth? And then he follows that up with, Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, this is what we're talking about as a place to, it's not the place you want to be from. And so to be called a Nazarene was a term that was literally, it was disrespectful, which is where we see our connection here, because there are multiple prophets that said that the Messiah would be despised and rejected. Isaiah being the most famous one that you've probably heard many, many times. And it's Isaiah 53, three that says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Some translations I believe say we esteemed him not. So we see Jesus yet again fulfilling yet another prophecy that he would be from Nazareth. That's, that can't be debated. And because of that alone, he would be despised and rejected. This is only five. This is only five. And he fulfills all five of those. Imagine spending the time together to go through 300 and some prophecies again and again and again pointing to one person Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah you know God could have chosen any way that he wanted to save us I don't know if you think about that at Christmas time you know sometimes it makes us think a little bit more about Jesus actually coming and coming here as a a baby I mean he could have sent Jesus as a king but yet he chose to send him as a baby What did that do for us? Well, first of all, it allowed him to fulfill this prophecy. But understand, guys, God didn't have to give us all this prophecy. God did not have to give us his word. He didn't have to give them in the ancient times all the, the, the Jewish text. He didn't have to give them that. He didn't have to explain to them, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen, this is what's going to happen. And then many people got to experience it in their lifetime happening. And now we get to, in our lifetime, read about it and know and, and, and see what exactly happened and how it all comes together, how it was all proven. God was helping us with our unbelief. He knew this would be something difficult for us to, to believe, or even the people then to believe. And so He sends Jesus as a baby. Again, he didn't have to do it this way, but he does it this way to fulfill prophecy. He wanted to do everything in his power to say, listen, I'm giving you everything you need to know, more and more proof that he is the Messiah, and just to show you how much I love you. Jesus could have descended to earth flanked by thousands of angels, but think about the fact that instead he wanted to share in our humanity. He wanted to demonstrate his humility. This is incredible to me. That, again, God could have done this so many different ways, but yet he does it this way, which then allows you and me to, I don't know about you, but the, the th- how thankful I am when I read Scripture and that I get to read about Jesus' life, that I get to see, I get to get a, a visual of God in the flesh and what he did and what he said and how he lived. It helps me to know and see what I'm supposed to do. It helps me to know and, and see how and who, how God acts, who God is, how much he loves, how much he loved me. He didn't have to do this for us, but he does this for us. It just keeps pointing back to how great our God is. Church, as you think about Jesus' birth this Christmas season, his coming as a baby, how he fulfills over 300 prophecies, man, let it remind you that God is always faithful to his promises. It's just that one more thing to remind us. And, and that Jesus is indeed the proven, promised Messiah. God didn't have anything to prove. He didn't have to prove it. But he gives it to us over and over and over again to the point that he makes it mathematically impossible for this to happen by accident. So we can have even more stuff to look at to say, I believe. Man, I believe. How could I not believe? It's like Dr. Stoner said, How could... It's the most proven thing that we've got to look towards. And how could we just say it's not true? It's craziness. Even, you know, Paul will say, listen, even creation says there's a creator. It's just people will suppress the truth. Everyone knows there's a God. He says, but people will suppress the truth. They'll choose not to believe it. They are choosing to throw away 300 prophecies. They're choosing to throw away what they see with their own eyes around them, the hardening of their hearts, and choose not to believe. Man, let this be something that once again shows us that Jesus is indeed the proven, promised Messiah, the one who came to save and rescue sinners like you and me. I'm so grateful and thankful for that. Amen?